Thank you, Bart and Tiffany, for helping us worship today. Uh, Dan Baker and our youth choir are in Boston this morning singing in worship services. A group of about 80 on a mission trip, and uh, they drove to Dallas and flew to Boston. So you'll be praying for that group as they'll be working all week on mission projects in the Boston area. And that's following a busy week at Bible school. So pray for Dan and uh, those on the trip as they have a, a wonderful missions experience. Acts 14, we'll begin in, verse, in chapter 13 in just a moment, but we'll continue our sermon series uh, from the book of Acts. The title of today's sermon is Theodicy. Theodicy, it's probably a word with which you're not familiar, but you experience it every day. Theodicy is an attempt to explain how three things can exist together. How can God be all-powerful, God be all-good, and yet God's people suffer? You see the problem? How can God be all-powerful, God be all-good, and yet the innocent suffer? It's sort of a three-legged table that doesn't make any sense. If we didn't believe that God was all-powerful, it would work. We could say, well, God is all-good, and the innocent suffer, but that's because God wished He could do something about all innocent suffering. He's just not powerful enough to do so. But we don't believe that, do we? Or it would work if we said that the innocent suffer, and God is all-powerful, but, you know, God has a day when he's ornery every now and then, and so the innocent suffer. And that would work for us, too, because we could say, yeah, I hope God's in a good mood today, so the innocent won't suffer. But we got a problem, because we believe that God is all-powerful, and God is all-good, and yet the innocent suffer. And somehow, in this puzzle, well, the You'll spend a lifetime trying to figure out the problem. I gave you the problem. It's called theodicy, making sense of that three-legged table that, that stands when we think that it should. There's been a lie in churches for years. The lie goes something like this. If you only accept Jesus, if you only have enough faith, if you'll only be part of the church, the people of God, you won't have any suffering. You won't have any pain. You won't have any challenges or frustrations or depression. Be, just be a man of faith. Just be a woman of faith. You just name it and claim it. You rebuke it and you bind it. And Satan and all the suffering of your life will soon flee from you. One televangelist who believed that sort of theology was asked, what would he do if he found out that he had AIDS? He said, I would thank God all day long for my healing, and I would read all the scriptures about healing, and I would take communion over and over again. And if I woke up in the middle of the night worried about it, I'd read all the scriptures about healing, and I would praise myself back to sleep. And he said, and I quote, by the way, this will work to rid your body of any sickness, and anybody can do it. The same evangelist said in a publication in November of 1987, you can absolutely 
Believe God for anything in the world and get it. You can absolutely believe in God for anything in the world and get it. The evangelist said something like this. You need to fight the temptation to get sick. That getting sick is a temptation to not follow Christ. He said you need to fight that just like you'd fight a temptation to steal or to lust. You need to fight that temptation and rebuke it just like Jesus did with Scripture. Such thinking associates suffering with Satan and health and prosperity with God. That's a lie that's been around the churches for a long time. It's not what Paul says. It's not what Scripture says. In our passage this morning, in, in 1422, I want you to look at the end of that verse. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How do you get to the kingdom of God? With health, wealth, and prosperity? Huh. Well, that's not what Paul says here. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Spurgeon said God's people have their trials. It was never designed by God when he chose his people that they should be an untried people. They were chosen in the furnace of affliction. They were never chosen for worldly peace and earthly joy. Freedom from sickness and the pains of mortality was never promised to God's people. When their Lord drew up their charter of privileges, he included suffering among the things to which they should inevitably be heirs. Trials are a part of the lot of the people of God. Good men must never expect to escape troubles. If they do, they will be disappointed. For none of their predecessors have been without them Look at the patience and the trials of Job. Look at Abraham. He had his faith in the midst of trials and became the father of the faithful. Note well the biographies of all of them, the patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles, the martyrs, and you will discover that everyone that God makes his own goes through the fire of affliction. It's ordained of old that the cross of trouble shall be engraved on every child of God as a royal mark whereby the king's children are distinguished. But although tribulation is thus the path of God's children, they have the comfort of knowing that their master has traversed it before them and they have his presence and sympathy to cheer them and his grace to support them and his example to teach them how they endure. And when they reach the kingdom of God, all the suffering, all the much tribulation will have been worth it. Now that's what the Bible says. It is full of the message that God's people will suffer even in the midst of their ministry. What did Job say? Job says in chapter 14, man who is born of woman has a few days and they're full of trouble. Man born of a woman has a few days and they're full of trouble. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 3.3? The church of Thessalonica in the midst of their suffering, Paul says, you yourselves know that you were appointed for this suffering. In fact, we find 
God's word that suffering is the mark of his people. I don't care if you're talking about the patriarchs. How many times did the psalmist suffer? The prophets, the apostles, and by the way, our Lord suffered. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In fact, if you'll think back in Acts, Acts chapter 9, verse 16, after Paul is on the road to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, he sees the bright light, he goes blind for a moment, and Jesus says, I'm going to show Paul how much he will suffer for my sake. I'm going to show Paul how much he will suffer for my sake. In Philippians, Paul says this, And the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, I have suffered the loss of all things, but I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformed to the death of Christ. Romans 8, Paul says, We're the children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. If we're heirs of God, we're heirs with Christ. If indeed, if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy, to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Romans 8, 16 through 18. You see the equation? That's not what we want. We want to share the glory of Christ, but we don't want to share his suffering. But what Paul says is, if we suffer with him, then we will likewise be glorified with him, and the glory will make us forget all the days of suffering. Turn back to Acts 13, verse 44. In our, in our story, setting it up, and the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled. This is Pisidian Antioch. To hear the word of God, but when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. And since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. So there Paul is setting up our passage. He's in Pisidian Antioch. It's the second Sabbath. People hear the preaching of the word. The Jews are stirred with jealousy. Paul says, then we're taking it to the Gentiles. Look what happens in verse 50. In verse 50, the Jews aroused the devout women of promise and the leading men of the city and instigated persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So they've had trouble there in Pisidian Antioch. They're driven out of town. Then we get to chapter 14. They go to Iconium, 90 miles southeast of Antioch. Look at verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. But despite that, 14.3, they spoke boldly in the Lord. At verse 5, they literally tried to stone Paul and the missionaries. And so they flee to Galatia. They get to Lystra. They're 14.10. Look at 14.9. A man was listening to Paul. He spoke, and when he fixed his eyes upon him, 
He had seen that he had been faith to be made well, and with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he leaped up and began to walk. There's a man who was born lame there in Lystra, and Paul tells him to leap up, and he does. And all of a sudden, they're convinced that Paul and Barnabas are Hermes and Zeus. And they believe that Paul is Hermes because Paul does all the talking and that's the God who talks. And Zeus is the God that's a little more quiet. And they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And they say, no, 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 don't do that. We are nothing but men. But the Jews come from the other cities that have called persecution from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium. And, well, they actually stone Paul. They stone him and leave him to dead. Look at verse 19. But with the Jews from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul. Don't read that too fast. They hurled large rocks at Paul and hurt him so badly they thought he was dead. They dragged him dead out of the city, supposing him to be dead. While the disciples stood around him, he rose and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas. And they began strengthening the soul. So now they've been beaten up and run out of town, almost stoned and then literally stoned. And now they're going back to the churches that they've started. They're tracing themselves back. And in the midst of tracing themselves back, Paul says to the disciples, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There it is. So this is a guy who's been stoned, run out of town through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom of God. Don't turn to it for time's sake, but I want you to hear 2 Corinthians 11. If you think Paul's being stoned is something, remember Jesus said, I want to show Paul how much you'll suffer for my sake. Listen to Paul's list of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That happened to Jesus once. Happened to Paul five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now you know where that passage comes from. Once I was stoned. That's Acts 14. Three times I've been in a shipwreck. I have floated day and night in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers of rivers and dangers of robbers, dangers from my countrymen and dangers from the Gentiles and dangers in the city and dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea and dangers among the false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and the cold exposed. Despite all that, There is the daily pressure on me for all the churches that I've planted. Who is weak without my being weak? And who falls into sin without my intense concern? Paul's litany of suffering, you you begin to, to wonder, how is he alive? Ministry is going to be tough. Sometimes we find folks in ministry, whether they're a professional minister. We're all ministers. It's just a matter of what we do to to make a living. You're as much a minister as I am. Sometimes we get discouraged in our ministry and we think that if if God has called us to do something, then doing that thing ought to be easy. 
If God is really in this, then he'll knock down all the walls and open up the doors and make it smooth sailing. What about Christ? Was anyone on ministry more than Jesus? And he was hungry for 40 days. He was weary. He was beaten, scourged, crucified. He had emotional pain. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He showed his sorrow over the fall of Jerusalem. But he said himself in Mark 8, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus himself knew that his ministry he'd been called to wasn't going to be health, wealth, and prosperity. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And after he's told them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, he says in Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I'm going to suffer and be killed, handed over to the Gentiles. And then he says, if you want to follow me, grab your cross too. And let's go on a journey. Seems like we're missing staying power as God's people anymore. I think deep down we know better. But somehow we all believe the lie that if we are living for Christ, that our life will be a cakewalk. It wasn't easy for Jesus. Wasn't easy for Paul. Wasn't easy for Abraham or Job or Moses. But somehow, despite the fact we've read it all, we think, in our case at least, an exception was sure to be made. Sometimes many women feel abandoned in the ministry. There are more people leaving the ministry than ever before. You go even to seminary where people are trading to be in the ministry, and you ask them what they do, what they want to do, and they get out. And not many of them will say they want to work in a church. They just don't want to do it anymore because it's not easy. For those of us who, who think church work is hard today, we might want to be reminded of our Baptist brethren in the early days of the American experiment, preachers in Virginia, who because they weren't preaching an Anglican theology were whipped, arrested, fined, and put in jail and given bread and water. That's in America, Baptist preaching. That's how tough ministry used to be. Sometimes in your ministry or mine, we might feel isolated or invalidated or trapped or empty or worn down or, or beaten up. Sometimes we think it ought to be easy. And it happens not only with ministers who do that for a vocation, but we're all ministers. It happens to those who, who work in Sunday school and, well, they teach the children and the children don't respond like they think that they ought and they wiggle or they giggle and they don't pay attention and they don't listen. You think, man, I can't take this anymore. If you go outside after worship, there's an aquarium up there and there's a plaque on it. Listen to how long these folks worked in our children's department. Stan Davis, 38 years. 
Marvin Standifer, 40 years. Edwin Stultz, 47 years. Lois Hill, 41 years. Grace Dow, 55 years. Martha B. Stultz, 47 years. Marilyn Cates, 30 years. Yvonne Franklin, 45 years. Eight Sunday school workers together had a combined 344 years of service in our children's department. Today, someone devotes themselves to two years, and they say, man, I've done my turn. Wow, glad that's over. Really? Really? Steadfast, true. Sometimes, I'm sure there's lots of times that Grace Dow thought, man, I got to get out of here. These kids aren't paying attention. But instead, she stayed at the table in the Sunday school classroom for 55 years. Sometimes we want to quit. Throw in the towel. We feel unappreciated, undervalued, like we're spinning our wheels and getting nothing done. But Paul says, through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom of God. Someone said, I asked God to grant me patience, and God said, no, patience is the byproduct of tribulation. It isn't granted, it is earned. I asked God to give me happiness, and God said, no, I'll give you blessings, but the happiness is up to you. I asked God to spare me pain, and God said, no, suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me. I asked God to make my spirit grow, and God said, no, you must grow it on your own, but I will prune to make you fruitful. I asked God that for all things that I might enjoy life, and God says, no, I will give you life that you can enjoy all things. And then I asked God to help me love others like I love myself, and God said, ah, you're finally on to something now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, discipleship means Allegiance to the suffering of Christ. There it is. Great German theologian who, by the way, died for his faith. Imprisoned and died for his faith. Discipleship means allegiance to the sufferings of Christ. It is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. He's in jail. Imprisoned when he writes those words. Someone once said that suffering colors your life. It is true, but you can choose the color. Does it make you better through the suffering or bitter through the suffering? I don't care what anybody else tells you. God's Word says, and I quote 1422 of the Acts of the Apostles, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Probably the king of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel was Jim Baker himself. Jim Baker wrote a book entitled, I Was Wrong. In prison, he learned that all the things he'd been saying about if you'll just ask for it, name it, claim it, life will be easy, no suffering. God wants everyone to be wealthy and have a life of ease. He said, I was wrong. I got in prison. I actually had time to read the book versus preaching the book, and I saw there wasn't a single patriarch or prophet that didn't have suffering 
in his life. I was wrong. And then he said, though you'll go through the suffering, this is true. He finally got it right. God will never, ever forsake you in the midst of your suffering. Theodicy. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. And yet he has called his people, especially his people, to be shaped and molded and made through the trials of the fire of suffering. Let us pray. Oh, God, in a room this size and those watching by television, there's a lot of suffering in this room, and I know about a lot of it, and there's a hundred times more than I know about. Some suffering in their marriage and others suffering at the workplace and some waiting for the results of a biopsy and others, Father, just so unsure about a child and a, a child's behavior. They have a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter. Father, even this morning we acknowledge that even as Christ suffered, that we are called to suffer with him. And God, we thank you that no matter what we're going through this morning, we acknowledge it, we admit it, and know that you will not forsake us, for your strength is perfected in our weaknesses. In the name of Jesus, we pray.